0: are going to get started we got a lot going on today and I want to get through we're going to pick up where we left off last week we've been in this series called the alternate reality for a little while now and the definition of the word reality is the world or the state of things as they actually exist as opposed to an idealistic or a notional idea of them and we're looking at the two realities of the world that we live in we've got the reality of the physical world and we have the reality of the spiritual world And the spiritual world is the one that you and I hone from. This is where we come from. We are in a world that we are not of. We see that in John chapter 17 as as Jesus, getting ready to go to the cross, lays this out in verse 13. He says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, who is he speaking of here? His disciples. Now, when we hear the word disciples, we immediately think of the 12, but it's not just a reference to the 12. Because remember, Jesus had hundreds of thousands of disciples. He had 12 apostles. But as we saw in other places, they were baptizing people all the time. And so he says, the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Sanctified means to be set apart. And so as we've examined this, and we've gone through this week by week, we see there's a clear distinction. There is a them, and then there is a us. We see that all pretty much throughout history. At one point, there was the nation of Israel, and then if you were a Gentile, it means you were not an Israelite. It's pretty easy. It didn't matter if you were Ethiopian or... Some other form of an African or if you hailed from Australia, didn't make any difference. You were a not-Israelite, thus you were a Gentile. Pretty simple. Cut and dry. There was two groups. There's still two groups. There's those in Christ and there's those not in Christ. Those not in Christ are under the mandates of this world. You and I do not fall into that category. We're a born-again believer, spirit-filled, set apart by God to be sanctified by Him. By what? His truth. What is truth? His word. See, it's the word of which that we flow everything through. That is the lens that we look at everything. Whatever's going on in this earth, and it's chaotic out there, and as we get into another fun political season, it's not going to get less chaotic. But we have to filter everything through the word of God. There's a lot of debate inside the church, and I'm using that word very loosely right now. The word church that comes down to the Word of God. In fact, many years ago, many, many years ago, I'd been asked to go up towards the Lincoln area. This is when I was out living in Hastings, out in the Lincoln area, because there was a church that needed some help, and they wanted to bring me on board to help get some things established, and get some things going for them, and all of that. And so I went to meet with the pastor of that church, and as we sat down, he was kind of telling me what was some of the stuff was going on, and I was getting some ideas, and, and things like that. And I said, i got to ask you a question. And I, said, and I said, so please don't take this the wrong way, I just, I have to ask it's sad that I have to ask this question. I said, "Where do you fall on the authority of Scripture?" And he says, "Well, what do you mean by that?" I said, "Do you believe the Word of God is the unadulterated, perfect in every way, Word of God?" And he says, "Well, it's always a good sign, right there." He's like, "We believe that it is the Word of God. However, it was written by man, and therefore, there are some things in it that are probably not right." I stood up, I shook his hand, I said, this isn't going to work. Because without the Word of God, we don't know about God. Without some standard to look at, to apply, how do we know anything about God? That's why we're seeing an increase in spirituality, but spirituality is just basically nonsense. Clothed in this idea of, of, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Well, based on what? We have to have some standard to apply. If you eliminate the Word of God then the ideas that you have about God are just opinions. They're not grounded in anything. You can say what you want. I can say what I want. We both can be right even if we have opposing viewpoints, which is just, just nonsense. But you know, we don't know what bathroom to use anymore, so we live in a world of nonsense, so that's fine. You see, what Jesus is saying here, they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. As you sent me, I sent them, implying what? We ought to walk as he walked. Not just from a moral standpoint, Not just feed the poor and and, and clothe the naked and all that other stuff. Every aspect of Jesus' life is something we should emulate. Our examples are not simply Paul's or Peter's or one of those guys. Our example is Jesus. Those guys followed him. As I follow Christ, you follow me type of thing that Paul said. And so what we see here in this this passage is that we are clearly distinct and clearly on mission. Did Jesus come with a mission? Yep. I've got to be about my Father's work. What does that mean for us? As you sent me, I sent them. And then we see this passage in Luke chapter 22, dealing with the idea of a communion. It says in verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles with him and he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this divided among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave them. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We know that from other passages, there are two aspects of that. We know what Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 11. And ultimately what was going on, he said, with fervent desire, wide fervent desire. Why this Passover? It's not the first Passover he's been to. It's not the first Passover he ate with his apostles. But this is the one with fervent desire because he's introducing. I told you that this is a peace meal. Now we have peace with God. In Romans 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope and glory of God. These are two new terms. That before, because you did not have peace with God, that's because you had to make sacrifices every time you made the sacrifice. It reminded you, I'm not at peace with God, I have to appease Him, I have to atone for my shortcomings. And we certainly didn't have access. Only one person ultimately did. Who was that? The high priest, because the domain of God—I'll show you this again in a moment—was inside the Holy of Holies. And the high priest, one time a year, got to go in there. Who else got to go in there? Nobody. If somebody tried, what happened? They did. Thanks for playing. Do not pass go. It's over. And so suddenly we have peace with God. That's pretty awesome. And we have access. You know what he says, enter boldly into the throne room and find grace in the time you need it? That did not exist before. That tells me basically what my kids do. When they want in, yo, mom, dad, what's up? I need a cookie. I mean, that's essentially what's going on. I think I pulled a hammy there. I should probably do some squat thrusts or something. You see, this whole idea comes from this new covenant, but what about the old as we talked about this? In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34, it says, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. When a lion, a bear came and took them out of the flock, I went after and struck it, delivered a lamb out of his mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by his beard, struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them seeing that he's defied the armies of the living god moreover david said the lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion from the paw of the bear he will deliver me from the hand of the philistine pretty confident for a little boy who was delivering cheese daniel chapter 3 verse 16 shadrach meshach abednego answered and said to the king o nebuchadnezzar we have no need to answer you in this matter if that is the case the god whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand O king but if not let it be known to you that we do not serve your guys, nor we worship the gold image which you have set up. Pretty confident from some young boy standing against Nebuchadnezzar, who at the moment's women would like, yeah, I'm going to kill you now. That was his thing. They knew what God was going to do. If Nebuchadnezzar threw him in the fire, he's going to save him. And if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. They were obedient. But why were they obedient? And why were they confident? They're obedient to the covenant. They knew what God had promised. If we obey, we'll be blessed. You know what happens when you're blessed? You're not killed by the enemies of God. Goliath was an enemy of God, Nebuchadnezzar, enemy of God. He can bring nothing against them as long as they were obedient to the covenant. Why? Well, in Psalm 89, 34, it says, my covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. See, they were confident in their covenant. And if they were confident in a covenant that was breakable, how confident in the covenant that you and I walk in should we be? You see, I showed you these different covenants. There's there's eight of them if you want to be technical. Okay, there's more than that inside of scripture, but these are the biggies. The Adamic and the Edenic kind of fall together. Noahic, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and then the new. And all of them, with the exception of the Mosaic, is one is based on what man does. When he set that up, he said, go to them, say, if you keep my commands and you do everything I say, you'll be blessed. If not, you'll be cursed. Do you accept the terms? They said, yeah, we accept them. And then they sprinkled the blood and they did all the stuff. And everybody was hunky-dory for about 32 seconds. And then they built the golden calf and then they broke it and then they reiterated it. And it was a whole thing. But every other one of those covenants was based on a promise that God had made. The only one that was bilateral, meaning it was between two parties, not on behalf of another, but between two parties, which means both had a part to play with it, is the Mosaic Covenant. And as we have seen in the New Testament and parts of the Old, that is a re- reference to the Old Covenant. So every time the New Testament says the Old Covenant it is a reference to the Mosaic Covenant, which could be broken, but no other one could. Because it's based on God's promise. So why were those young men so confident? Because they were keeping the covenant. And this is what it comes down to. Is if they can be confident in a breakable covenant that's based on keeping 613 laws, based on doing everything perfect and right, how much more should we be in this new covenant? And so we began to talk about a couple of different things over the last couple of weeks, dealing with the comparison of the new to the old. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. So we're referencing Jesus as the most high priest. He's ministering to the sanctuary, the true tabernacle. Not the one that Moses built, but the one that Moses saw and built after. It says every high priest is appointed to both offer offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one, referring to Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests, and they were offered the gifts according to the law who served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Now, you don't have to be an expert in the English language to know that better is better. Right? Not a far stretch. But this new covenant... Is not like the old, it is based on better promises. Well, let's look at what this is Jeremiah 31. I know we're recapping, just stay with me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. There's a whole other thing that you could go off on there, but here's the deal. We know which covenant he's referencing. This is the mosaic, okay? Because this is the one they made after they left Egypt. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Isn't that powerful? He will remember their sin no more. That doesn't mean he forgot, that means he chooses to forget. It's not like he, I don't know where I put my car keys type of thing. He chooses not to remember. Why is that? Because they don't have to sacrifice every year. See, the sacrifice was a reminder of all the things that they got wrong. But now we have a separation. Something has changed. And so we saw the difference between the old and the new covenant. You remember what it was? It comes down to the priesthood. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now, I know we're recapping, but bear with me for a moment. So I put these pictures up here. I've, I've cut some of these out, but go ahead. This is a layout of what they were in. You would enter into the gate. You would have the brazen altar here, the brazen labor, both being bronze. That's what brazen means, okay? The sacrifice would be made by the priest. You would come and bring your animal, whatever it was. You would lay your hands upon it as the priest did. The priest would then... Uh, kill the animal, and then whatever was going on, how he was burned, if the whole thing was burned or parts of it were burned, it's all a big deal. Then they would wash, and then they would take the blood into here. Now, into here, you've got the table of showbread, you've got the menorah, or the lampstand, and you've got the altar of incense. And what we have learned is that any priest, as long as they were Levite, could enter into this place. Could everybody enter into that place? No. They would oftentimes meet out here. You'll see it talk about that at the entrance, either here or here. So they couldn't all just go in here. But if you were a Levite from the tribe of Levi, you could. And they would come in here and they would do their things and all of that. Here we have the separation. This takes you out of the holy place and to the most holy place of the holies of holies. And this is where we have the Shekinah glory. And so as we see here that it talks about that the first covenant had ordinance of divine service, talking about this tabernacle later to be the temple. In verse 3 it says, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is the holiest of all, which had the golden incense. A golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod and budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and made with, uh, above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. So again, let's look at this real quickly. So you have the Ark of the Covenant. When you went in behind that place, this here is the Ark of the Covenant. This here is the mercy seat. This was considered to be the throne of God, where the Shekinah glorious. This was considered his footstool. Okay? I don't know how you get your feet back there, but if you're God, you can do it. No big deal. Now, if you go inside of here, you've got the tablets, the budding round of Aaron, and the jar of manna. All three symbolizing different stuff. Not going to get off onto that today. I think I got one more. That's it. I don't have one more. Ignore me. I don't know what I'm talking about. So, in this place where this was is the only person, the only person that could go in there was the high priest one time a year. Now let's go to verse 6. Now these things had thus been prepared. The priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. So what was he doing? He sacrificed for himself and atoned for that. And then he would represent the nation of Israel by sacrificing for them. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drinks, various washing and fleshly ordinance, opposed until the time of reformation. This is a time of reformation, is the time of Christ's sacrifice, because that is when we see the transition of the priesthood fully completed. But I think I've got a few more pictures, I think, do I? I do, let's go. This is on the Day of Atonement is what this is referencing. The high priest would change into this outfit. There was two goats, the one being the scapegoat, the one other sacrifice, Azazel. We're not going to get into that, they release him, there's a whole thing there. Go on to the next one. He would come in here, now this is the temple, don't get confused by that, he would take some of the incense in here, this here was the veil, it says to be the width of a man's hand, very thick, and it also, again, this is is folklore, if you will, says there is no opening to it. In other words, there wasn't a slit in the curtain that he could get through, it was a supernatural event that took place. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that is the folklore behind it, Jewish fable, if you will. He would go in here with the blood, and here you would see the smoke rising, and he had to get everything perfect, every detail. What happens if he missed one little thing? He's dead. Again, thanks for playing. It's been fun. We need a new high priest now. Okay? There's a lot of, uh, again, folklore with this, but understand this. He had to get every detail correct, and if he didn't, the sins of the nations could not be atoned for. You got one shot. If this guy doesn't do it right, you got to wait till the Day of Atonement next year. It's called the Day of Atonement of atonement not days of atonement okay it's kind of like when you hand it in your paper to the teacher and they would hand it back and say okay you can correct these things and still get credit that didn't work here there was no do-overs is that the last one it is the last one see i'm doing all right so there's a lot to this All set apart. This was so crucial. This was the lifeblood of the nation of Israel. Everything they did surrounded, both figuratively and literally, because they camped around this thing, where the presence of God was. And only one man could enter in. And there was a lot of detail to doing it. But verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression of the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, I know that was a mouthful, but we got to see the distinction. There was something that took place, because to be the high priest, you had to be a Levite, but more importantly, you had to be from the line of Aaron. If you were not one of the sons of Aaron through the lineage, you could not become high priest. You could serve in the priesthood, but you couldn't serve as the high priest. It was very important. And we saw last week the distinction between the order of Melchizedek. And we watched how Christ was after the order of Melchizedek. And I don't want to go through all of that again for time's sake, but understand how important that is. The book of Hebrews lays all of this out very clearly. The part that we screw up on is twofold with the book of Hebrews. It's number one, if you want the context of the book of Hebrews, you've got to read the entire thing. Because there really is no change of thought. It all is referencing back to events that took place in the Old Testament. And That's problem number two. We don't know that very well because we don't talk about it. But the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old. And if you don't understand that, then none of this will make sense. And when it doesn't make sense, you know what we do? We turn them into metaphors and analogies. And we're like, oh, this is just a spiritual thing. No! David was not standing against his problem. He was standing against a a 10-foot dude with a big sword. And he had a rock. Odds were not in his favor. And all he did was want to deliver the cheese. That was it. That's what we turn these things into. These were serious problems. The whole line and the bear thing has me pretty impressed, let alone the giant dude. So when we look at this, we see that it's like, okay, Christ could not be high priest under the old covenant because he did not come from the line of Aaron. Physically, he could not. He didn't meet the qualification. But under the order of Melchizedek, which predated the law. And we saw that God chose his high priest. It wasn't chosen by man. And under both, really. And then I I showed you guys last week how I believe, where I believe that the transformation took place was at the time of Jesus being baptized by John because he said it is imperative that I be baptized by you. John didn't want to do it, and I understand that. But he's like, we have to be, that all righteousness may be fulfilled. Why is that? As I showed you, my opinion, okay, I'm not the only one that holds it, but it is my opinion, is that John was the rightful high priest that year. The current high priest was picked by Rome. Rome had no business doing that, but, you know, Rome likes to do that kind of thing. That John was the rightful high priest chosen by God because both his father and mother were of the line of Aaron. And at the moment that he baptized him, which is how the high priest would transition. The old high priest would mikvah, the new high priest, baptize him. Not like you and I do. They would go under their own power. That it would transform or or, or transition the authority of the high priest from one to the next. And we saw last week that the old covenant was until John. And since then, we've been preaching the kingdom of God. There's a lot that goes into that. And so as we began to look at that, then we've got to look at one more thing. It's the role of the priesthood because if the old covenant isn't in place, that would also mean that the priesthood has transitioned, right? Levites are irrelevant underneath the Melchizedekian priesthood. Any lineage is irrelevant. In fact, any person that God chose could serve in that role because he chose Melchizedek. But look at Hebrews chapter eight, verse one. It says, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest Who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. So, this is the one that God has set up, the one that Moses modeled after, and we have the high priest being Jesus serving in that role. So, we clearly see that the role of the priesthood is there, but there's another side to it. It's what is happening in this moment. And so, I want to go back and look at a passage that often doesn't get read enough. And show you a role of the priesthood that I bet we have missed out on. Because we just don't think through it of what they were doing. And it's in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and we're dealing with King Uzziah. Now Uzziah served at the time that Zechariah and Isaiah both were were both prophets. At the time that they're writing. You'll see a little bit in Isaiah later. But I want you to look at this and I want to kind of break this down a little bit today. To show you the role of the priesthood and how this applies to you and I. 2 Chronicles chapter 26 verse 1. It says, now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. Now, here's the thing. How many 16-year-olds do you know? How many 16-year-olds you made? Would you put them in charge? No. There are questions you, you ask, like, how dumb can you be and still get yourself dressed in the morning, right? If you've ever had a teenager, okay, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But he's going to run the nation. Nothing can go wrong with that. I bet he tweeted about it right after he got inaugurated. Verse 2, he built Elath and restored it to Judah, and after the, king re- after the king rested with his father. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. That's a long time, y'all, especially at this time point. So he was in charge for a very long time. His mother's name was Jecoliah, uh, Jecoliah, excuse me, of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father, Amaziah, had done. Now let's stop. That's huge. Not every king did that. The northern tribe was a disaster. They had no good kings. The southern tribe had some, but he followed in his father's footsteps, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, which is good, because what happens in that, underneath that covenant, that means God is with you, you will prosper, you will be blessed, and as you're going to see, he changes the nation, expands it, does a lot of good things, but it's very crucial. That means he didn't amass for himself multiple wives because the kings were forbidden to do that. It meant that he would go out into battle and come back in. Things where David would ultimately fail in. There's a lot of stuff that goes into that, but ultimately what we see the crucial part is is that in order to keep that covenant, what did he have to do? Be obedient. This went to everybody. Okay? Verse 5. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, as I told you, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord... God made him prosper. Was that a key cog in that Mosaic covenant? Yeah. As long as you sought the Lord, you will prosper. And if you don't, you will be cursed. Which one do you want, nation of Israel? They agreed to the terms. God is keeping his end. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 6. Now he went out and he made war against the Philistines. And he broke down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jabda, and the wall of Ashta. And he built cities around Ashdod. And among the Philistines. Were the Philistines the good guys? No. Where is Gath? Gath is where David fled to. And Gath is where Goliath was from. Goliath of Gath. Okay? So not exactly friendly terms. But he took them out. He took all these other people out. Verse 7. God helped him against the Philistines. Against the Arabians who lived in Gerbael. And against the Muunites. Also, the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, and he became exceedingly strong. Now, what does it mean to bring tribute? You pay your taxes, essentially. You get to exist in peace as long as you pay me. It's a pretty sweet gig. So they are now bringing him money every year. And what's it say? His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, and he became Exceedingly strong. Now, why did all of this happen? Because he was obedient to the covenant. He sought the Lord. Look at verse nine. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the corner buttress of the wall. Then he fortified them. He also built towers in the desert. He dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains in Carmel, for he loved the soil. So monetarily, they are doing very well. Digging a well was not an easy proposition. There was no equipment. You were the equipment. So there was a lot that was going on here. Verse 11, moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out uh, to war by companies. According to the number of their roles prepared by jail, the scribe of Mesa, the officer under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captain. the total number of chief officers, Of the mighty men of valor was 2,600. And under their authority was an army of uh, 307,500. That made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. Those are good numbers. You're going to do okay. Then Uzziah prepared for them. For the entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, uh, bows, and slings to cast stone. And he made devices in Jerusalem. Invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones so his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. So, the thing to shoot large stones, what do you think that was? The catapult. I mean, the guy is like innovative. God's hand is clearly upon him. He sought after the Lord. Every king that ever existed in the nation of Israel would have the same results as long as they're obedient to the covenant every person in the nation of Israel would have had the same type of success as long as they were obedient to the covenant. This was not complicated. They knew the rules. They chose to keep them or not keep them, just like you and I. Now the thing is here, things are going really well for Uzziah. From 16 years old, for 52 years, things are going really well. Okay. Unfortunately, it doesn't stay that way. Verse 16, but, now that's never a good transition, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruct, destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, when he talks about his heart is lifted up, this is a reference to pride. As I've told you before, every sin you could trace back to pride, every single one of them. He was lifted up, his destruction, because of what? He transgressed against the Lord, his God. So he got a little too big for his britches. And what did he do? He entered the temple of the Lord. What did I tell you? Could anybody just walk in there? No, neither could the king. And what was he going to do? He was going to burn incense on the altar of incense. Whose job was that? It was the priesthood, the Levites, not the king's. They had separate roles. You'd think the king could do anything he wanted. Oh, no. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 23, verse 6. It says, But let no one come into the house of the Lord except the priest and those of the Levites who serve. They may go in, for they are holy. But all the people shall keep watch of the Lord. Who may go in? The Levites. What does holy mean? What means mean set apart, chosen? God chose them to go in. What does that mean to the king? Keep out. Do what you've been told to do. But he doesn't want to listen. So he is going to go in there, and he's going to burn incense. Watch verse 17. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Now here's the thing, Azariah was the high priest, and he took with him 80 Levites to go after the king. What happens when you go against the king? It's the whole off with his head type thing. You don't do that. But Azariah was doing what? He was protecting the temple. There's this whole clean and unclean thing, and that's part of that. Because Uzziah had no business being in there. He wasn't allowed in there. Holy things were only allowed in there. Uzziah did not meet the criteria. So he goes in there and he says, it is not to you. He's standing in his face. They're going to stop him from doing this. And of course, Uzziah is going to listen. He's like, hey, no, that's, that's right, guys. I'm so sorry. Verse 19. Then Uzziah became furious. He had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord, beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. Now, here's the deal. He was in there with that censer. That censer was what the high priest would use as he went into the Holy of Holies. Now, where do you think Uzziah might have been heading? There's a good chance. We can never say that with 100% certainty, but there's no other reason you take that thing in there. In my opinion, he was heading into the holy of holies. God judges him, strikes him with leprosy. They, when it says thrust him out of the place, it is literally mean they grabbed him and threw him out, which meant every one of those priests that touched him were now unclean. They would have to go and make a sacrifice and mikvah and separate themselves for a time to be obedient to the law. So this was a big deal. Verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper and he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house judging the people of the land. Now, when it talks about he was separated, he dwelt in an isolated house. He was the king. He was on top. He had servants, soldiers, everybody was with him. But when you are a leper, They would go into these colonies later on. But you would have to isolate yourself. And if somebody was coming near you underneath the law, you were required to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that they knew and they would not come near you. So the man was at the top as he sought after the Lord. And then he decided to go about things his own way. And now he's struck with leprosy. And he is now set apart. And it says he was cut off from the house of the Lord, which means what? He could no longer bring a sacrifice. Lepers couldn't bring a sacrifice. They couldn't enter in. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. He was there until he died. Verse 22. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from the first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote. So Uzziah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of burial, which belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Imagine his tombstone. Imagine all that he had done for 52 years for the nation of Israel, obedient to God, and in a moment of indiscretion, it all goes away, and he dies a leper's death. That's bad. But that's not the moral of the story here, at least not for us today, because it's not about Uzziah. It's about the priesthood. You see, the priesthood stepped in there to go against the king. The king, who has all authority? The king. They stood toe-to-toe with him and threw him out of the temple. You see, it wasn't just that they performed the sacrifices. It wasn't just that they would go in there and they would do all this stuff and you saw how they get separated into two-week intervals later on and all this other stuff. It wasn't even just that the high priest who went in there atoned for the nation. That's all part of their responsibility. But clearly, another one is to protect the house of the Lord, the way to God. This is where God's presence was. Their job was to not just let anybody in. Even if it's the king, their job was to protect it. Now, let's look at what Isaiah says here. Verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, when he came concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So it gives you the time period of which Isaiah was a prophet in the nation of Israel. Jump down to chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year the king Uzziah died. He has this vision, a vision that we are all accustomed to. It said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, those are angels. Each, had, uh, each one had six wings. The two he covered his face with, the two he covered his feet, and the two he flew and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and, said to this ho- uh, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a uh, people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now here's the thing. It's not just the King. He's God. What happens to enter into the presence of God? You have to be atoned for. He wasn't. He has unclean lips. No sacrifice has been made. No mikvah has been done. And the people he associates with, they're unclean too. And now I'm seeing God, which means what? I'm dead. I'm going to die. Because he's in the presence of the God in the same way that the high priest would be if he had not followed every single step. But look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin purged. Now, this is powerful because he now has made Isaiah clean to be in the presence of God. Now, here's the thing, guys. When we look at this, okay, we're looking at all of this. We're like, okay, what does this have to do with you and I? You see, something changed in that new covenant. The first thing that we see here is this piecemeal that took place. We are now at peace with God. We can be if we enter into this covenant. We have access to God for the first time ever. That's never happened before. Look at all the details. I mean, the king is struck with leprosy trying to get to God that you and I take for granted. We just walk in. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, which is what? The holy of holies. By the blood of Jesus. How do we get there? Through his sacrifice. By a new and living way. Why living? He's alive. Before it was always through death. We see all other places, the, the death of the testator, which he consecrated for us. Who did he do it for? Us. Who is he? There you go, you guys are doing well. Through the veil. The veil is what separated the holy place which any priest could go to, from the most holy place which one priest could go through one day a year. That is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, which means trust. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is always a picture back to that old covenant system. But the veil that separated God from man was torn. And what is it? What was it a symbol of? It was Christ's flesh. Which means what? In order to get to the Father, you must pass through Christ. Jesus himself, which gives a whole new meaning when you read John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do we get there? It's through him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious And to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which you also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, this is interesting. Because we see that we are bringing spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the veil, through Jesus Christ, where the presence of God is. See, that is what the high priest's role would do. That's what he did. But he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, which is interesting. Because royalty and the priesthood under the old covenant were two separate things, completely separate things, Right? Line of Aaron had nothing to do with royalty. But yet we have Melchizedek, king, priest. Jesus, king, priest. You and I reign with him, king and priest, his own special people, and we now obtain mercy going into that thing. But here's the deal. With the priesthood comes what? We protect the way of God. You see, we live in a culture that says you can get to God any way you want. We live in a church culture. Many of you grew up in it. And all You just know, be baptized as a child. You're in. It's gotten worse than that. We've turned communion and baptism into, into something that, that just makes us right with God. But that's not what it says. We have to go through the veil. We have to go through His flesh. It's the only way there. No man comes to the Father except through me, But it's now been opened up that anybody who has done that now enters into the presence of God. We can go anytime we want. Anytime we want. Not one day a year. Not one day a week. Anytime we want, we can go. But the role of the priesthood wasn't simply that. It was to show people the path, but protect those who are claiming to get in. Look at John chapter 20. Verse 21, this will give you new light on this. Think about the role of the priesthood in you and I. Verse 21, chapter 20, verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And he had said this. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. You and I must protect the veil. See, it's our job to tell people how to get through there. But those who are claiming more than one way It's our job as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's chosen people to protect what God has said because not anything goes, folks. You see, this new covenant is so much more vibrant than what we realize. And the beautiful part is there's no sacrifice that we make. There's no act that we do. The sinner's prayer isn't even a thing. It's what he has done. You and I have a bigger role in this new covenant. When you get these covenant things down, it will make you understand every aspect of it. Because as I told you, just like those old guys, when when David was confident, when all these guys were so confident, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what were they confident in? The covenant. Because God had promised. It was their rights. You and I have rights, expectations, and responsibilities in the new covenant. We're just starting to see those. We'll pick this up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it guides our steps in every aspect of who we are and what we know. Lord, I thank you that you have revealed to us in a way that we can understand our rights and our roles here, Lord. I thank you that you have equipped us with every tool necessary, that we go into this world proclaiming the good news of the gospel, full of the Holy Spirit and power to perform all your miracles and everything that you have done for us, Lord, to proclaim the goodness of who you are and what you've done. So, Father, we thank you for opportunities that you open for us to present this gospel, Lord, to let people know that there is a way to have peace with you and that we can show them the truth. Father, I thank you that you are growing our hearts, that we can understand ourselves in light of who you are and what you have called us to do. Lord, be glorified in every aspect of our lives. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you all Wednesday.